0: beneath the surface. I mean, there are ways of doing that. There is the x-ray, of course, which is old school, but still effective. There's the EKG, which doesn't actually see inside the human body, but what it does is measures the amount of electrical current in the body to be able to test heart damage. There's the CAT scan, the PET scan that actually takes pictures of inside the body to see bones and organ and tissue and blood flow and the amount of chemical activity inside the body. They even have cameras that you can swallow that are no bigger than a grain of sand that take 3D pictures of the inside of your spleen. They have pictures that they're cameras that they attach to the end of a, of a, of a cable no wider than, than a human hair, that they run inside your veins to, to see blockages from eating too many Pringles. I mean, this is, this is an incredible thing. And I hear this. I hear about these, these modern medical marvels and advances, and I think, okay, that's great. That's fantastic. But if only there was a way. If only we had a similar marvel to see inside the human soul. That would be really helpful. It would just be really great if there was a way to see inside the human soul to see if someone has eternal life or not, because we should probably know if we do or do not have eternal life. And guess what? It's exactly what we have. There is an EKG of the human soul. There is a CAT scan and PET scan of the human heart to see inside the human heart, to see if we do or do not have eternal life and where those things are found, or at least where some of them are found in the first letter of the epistle of John. This morning, that's exactly where we're going, a theological CAT scan of the soul, the soteriological x-ray of the human heart. Because you see, it's in 1 John and it's in the first chapter of 1 John where we find a series of tests that probe deep, far, below, beneath the surface to see if our salvation is authentic or if our salvation is counterfeit. And you understand the reason why John runs these tests, the reason why he has this EKG in chapter 1, is because the situation behind the letter was so urgent. You understand that there was these subtle but dangerous con men claiming this secret knowledge from Christ that had crept into these churches. And this secret knowledge had these plausible sounding arguments that called into question some of the most sacred doctrines of the Christian faith. And some of these people in these churches began to wonder, do I really have the truth? Is what the apostles led me to believe, is is that actually truly real? Do I truly actually have eternal life or do I not? Because according to the teachers, I don't. But according to the apostles, I do. Who am I supposed to believe? So John puts pen to paper and composes a letter designed to do one grand, ultimate thing in their lives. Namely, give them glad-hearted assurance and joy that those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith do in fact have eternal life. Assurance is the issue. Confidence is the issue. And in this letter, John's going to ask and answer three questions that are of profound, earth-shattering significance for us. Three questions that he asks and answers. Number one, what is eternal life? Number two, do you have eternal life? And number three, how would you know if you did have eternal life? How would you know? And you know, we have no problem asking ourselves those kinds of questions, do we? We have no problem interrogating ourselves. We have no problem being tough on ourselves and asking ourselves those kinds of questions. Why? Because we're not pinning our hopes on a performance, are we? Rather, we are pinning, we are banking everything on a divine Savior who became a man, came to earth, never sinned, purchased my soul with his death in my place. That's why we have no problem asking those kinds of questions. And we so need the letter of 1 John right now, not only in our church, but just period, just period. We so need this letter. And the reason for that, get this now, the reason why we need the letter of 1 John is because deep, profound, penetrating assurance of salvation teaches us to look at death without fear, to look at the past without shame, and to look at a future life of eternity without even a hint of a shadow of doubt. We, have, we really need this letter right now because, get this, the power of a people to slaughter sin, which we must. The power of a people to suffer hardship, which we will. To be rejected, which will happen. To fight materialism, to sacrifice our lives and to proclaim the gospel no matter the cost to our own lives is profoundly dependent upon our knowing what salvation is and means. We need this. So let's swallow the camera, shall we? Let's do a CAT scan of Holy Scripture and let's let the Apostle John show us what's inside our souls and here's where we're going. If you like outlines, I have one. This morning, I want you to see from our text, three foundations of salvation. Three foundations of salvation to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. Three foundations of salvation to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. We saw foundation number one last week, which was the incarnation. And now we get to salvation foundation number two. Number two, the foundational theological center of our salvation. This is number two, the foundational theological center of our salvation. Because again, you remember, I hope, what John is doing here in chapter one. This is, this is the classic case of two birds, one stone. Get this, at the exact same time, John obliterates the bogus claims of the false teachers, and with the exact same words, he simultaneously gives his people assurance of their salvation, all at the same time. And how he does that is by giving three salvation foundations, three rock-solid foundational realities that refute the claims of the false teachers and give us profound assurance. And they are, number one, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, which again we saw last week. Again, this is the historical proof and evidence that our salvation is real and grounded in the facts of history, and yet the incarnation, the heretics, deny why he spends so much time talking about it in verses one through three. But then foundation number two, which we're going to look at in three minutes, is the majestic transcendent character of God, which serves as the deepest guarantee and foundation of our salvation. You see, what John is about to say about God most roots our salvation in the character of God, and yet what John is about to say about God refutes the claims of the heretics. And then foundation number three, which we will see near the end, is that John gives us a series of tests, criteria. Test whereby we may know whether or not we truly have salvation. Benchmarks by which we gauge if our salvation is legitimate or if it is counterfeit. And these false teachers did not pass the tests. They utterly failed the test and revealed themselves to be both deceived and deceivers. And yet those who truly belong to Christ will pass the tests. You will pass them. If you belong to Christ. And so after John unfolds for us the incarnation in verses 1 through 3. He then moves to foundation number 2. Which is the deepest theological center of our salvation. As, as mysterious as what John is about to say about God. It's the reality by which we make sense out of everything in life. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, and this is the message which we have heard from him, and we are announcing to you. What's the message, John? That God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. That statement right there. That is as close to a definition of the being of God that human intelligence can comprehend. I mean, how do you summarize God in one single phrase? Apparently you say that God is light. You want to know something really profound? The entire letter of First John is an unfolding explanation of that statement right there. That God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. Because here's the thing, as John thinks about how to most debunk the claims of the false teachers and help his people unscramble their brains, he realizes that where he needs to begin is the very character of God Himself. Because that's always the place to begin. You understand, without God at the gravitational center of all things, nothing else in the world makes sense. Our understanding of the Christian life and salvation does not begin with our feelings or our emotions or our experiences or even our testimony. No, we only understand ourselves, our experiences, and our salvation when we climb up into the towering majesty of the God who is, which is exactly what John does. And notice, having just spoken about Christ and his incarnation in verses 1 through 3 or 4, look what he says in verse 5. And this is the message which we have heard from him. Who's the him? To, to whom is John referring? The, the him is Christ himself. The Son of God became a man proclaimed a message about God to the apostles. And what is the message that Christ proclaimed? Look at the text. That God is light. Think about that statement. That's an absolute work of art, isn't it? Just a few strokes of the pen and John unfolds for us this mesmerizing glimpse into the character of God. I mean, it makes sense on the surface, the more you think about what that is, the more it blows our minds. Because that's the question. What on earth could it possibly mean that God is light? And what does this matter for our lives? How does this help us understand our salvation? Well, consider what John is not saying. Consider what he's not saying. John is not saying that God is the sun, like paganism. He's not saying that God is... Inside the light, like some kind of new age paganism, spiritualism. He's not saying that the electromagnetic radiation and photon particles themselves are God, like pantheism. Rather, get this, light is a vivid way. It is a vivid metaphor for the majesty of God. It's a glorious synonym of the glory of God. It's a summary way of describing the transcendent, uncreated majesty of who God is with all of the innumerable perfections that make Him who He is. In other words, we tend to classify God in terms of His attributes, don't, don't we? We refract God out like light through a prism, and we speak in God, speak about God in terms of His perfections. God is holy. God is eternal. God is love. God is sovereign. And that's good and fine and right. And we should prize and ponder the perfections of God that make him who he is. But you see, when we unrefract God's perfections, and we pause, and we ponder, and we consider who God is as a whole, the blinding brightness of who God is as He. As a whole, the best way to summarize who God is is to simply say that God is light. It's a synonym for His glory, it's a metaphor for His majesty. All this is, is a summary way to describe the matchless worth and beauty of God. I mean, what better way to summarize God than as a blinding light, the glory of which would burn out our eyeballs should we gaze too long at his beauty. And the rest of the letter is unfolding the implications of that statement right there. By putting this at the front of the letter, I believe John is intimating to us that we cannot and will not understand our sin, salvation, or the Christian life, or anything that he is about to say until we understand that God is light, or should I say, until we understand the transcendent, uncreated majesty of God. Do you you see the implications of this? The implications of the transcendent, uncreated majesty of God, this is really a profound thing. You see, our threadbare thoughts about salvation come from a thrift store filled with weak theology about God. In other words, puny views of God breed anemic thoughts about salvation. What I mean is what the secular, psychological, unbelieving world calls bipolar or addictions or obsessive compulsive behavior or ADHD or anxiety disorders or panic attacks. Many in the church today believe that they are beyond the reach of divine supernatural power. Why? Not because they actually are beyond God's reach, but because maybe, maybe we have yet to come to grips with the power and majesty of God. This verse here, I believe this illustrates what A.W. Tozer was saying when he said his famous quote, listen carefully. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The gravest question before the church is always God Himself. And the most significant thing about a man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he deep in his heart conceives God to be like. All the problems of heaven and earth, were they to confront us together and at once, would be nothing compared to the overwhelming problem of God. God. The man who comes to a right belief about God, get this, is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. For he sees that these have to do with matters which at the most cannot concern him for very long. Some version of that is precisely John's point in verse 5. If we don't know the towering majesty of the God who is light, we cannot and we will not know what eternal life is. And yet before we're done with the letter, we will. And yet one of the things I love about John, his style of writing, is that he repeatedly uses a really simple kind of logic, That's really easy and simple to understand, and yet it's jolting in its power. You can feel it in the text. Look again at verse 5. And this is the message which we have heard from Him. And we are announcing to you that God is light. Here it is. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. See the logic? If God is light then there is no possible way in any way, shape, or form that God could even ever have a hint of a shadow of darkness. And yet the question is, what does that even mean? Why is John speaking about God in terms of light and darkness? And the answer is, John speaks about God in this way? Because it's very possible that these false teachers utilized the language of darkness and light in their own theology. They, they borrowed the metaphors of darkness and light from the Bible and yet the way they used them mutilated their meaning. You see, they claimed to be in the light and yet they walked in absolute darkness. They claimed to know the God who is light and yet the God they proclaimed at some level participated in tolerated, endorsed, and looked the other way when his people walked in darkness, which means at the end of the day, the kinds of errors these teachers were spreading about the Christian life were an attack on the very character of God himself. And so John draws a line in the sand, the width of the Grand Canyon, and he says, no, no. The issue at stake here is that God is light. And in him there is no darkness at all. Because if that is the kind of God you proclaim and believe in, that determines the kind of salvation you proclaim. And yet the question is, what is darkness? What is the darkness and what does it mean that God doesn't have any? Because look at the text. The Greek text literally reads that in God there is not no darkness. That's what the Greek text says. In God there is not darkness. No darkness. It's a double negative. doesn't work in English, but it's great in Greek. This is a no on steroids. This is absolute denial. Just as there are no shadows in the sun, so there is no possibility of darkness in God. And so the point is, if light, if light is the transcendent, uncreated majesty of God, If light is the unrefracted glory and beauty of God, then darkness is the opposite of that. Darkness is everything that God is not. And so what this means is, in the white, hot holiness of God's radiant being, there is not a single dust-sized particle of sin, deception, or corruption, which means two things. Here's why John is telling us this. Number one, the fact that God is light and has no darkness means that sinners on their own are doomed. We're doomed. If God is light, then we are doomed. Why? Because how can light have fellowship with darkness? How can unclean sinners approach the Holy One without being incinerated? How can wrath-deserving rebels ever hope to be reconciled to the God who is light? And the answer, the only answer to the question is the sin-bearing death of God in human flesh. Jesus Christ, who took the wrath He didn't deserve for sins He didn't commit, that is why the physical incarnation of the Son means everything. God made a way to save sinners from the dungeon of darkness through the death of his son. That's the way, the only way to be reconciled to the God who is light. So this verse here, this is a setup for the redemption that sinners like us need. But second, the second reason why John is telling us about the blinding majesty and darklessness character of God is because if someone claims to love the God who is light and yet they walk in the darkness, John says they're a liar and they do not practice the truth. In the very next verse, John says, if we say we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. I mean, you understand, John is trying to blow the cover of these imposters. These wolves in grandma's clothing, persuading people to follow them. And yet John says this right here in verse 5 about the character of God because he wants his people to know that the fundamental problem with these charlatans is that they didn't know God. And it showed in their lives. I mean, they seem so devout. They seem so spiritual, they seem so insightful, they seem so winsome and persuasive, their talk was so impressive, and yet their double lives and utter disregard for God's holiness revealed that the God they claimed to know was not actually the God of the Bible. He was not the God who is light. And so if John were standing here, the Apostle John, if he were standing here and if he were to be your pastor for the day, I think he would ask you a series of questions at this point, and I think some of the questions he would ask you is not, do you struggle and at times give in to sin? I don't think he would ask you that. I think he would ask you, do you knowingly tolerate sin in your life and kind of feel okay about it? He would not ask, are there some unfortunate inconsistencies in your life that you hate and from which you desperately want to grow? He would ask, are there some secret sins in your life that you do not want to part with? Are you living a double life? Do you have a secret life of shame? Because these teachers did. He exposes them as frauds. And yet I think John would also say that if you felt the pull and tug and disappointment of your life and saw those inconsistencies, and if you wanted to grow and you raised your hand and you said, "Uh, excuse me, John... Could you please help me, give me a process for growth and change? I think he would say that the way to grow, the way to change, the first step on the list to authentic life change and transformation, get this now, is that you must gaze at the gargantuan glory of God found in the pages of Scripture. If you want to grow, you have got to see God. Because the more glory you see of who God is, the more you are liberated from the sins that entangle you. Because low-calorie salad dressing might be a really good idea, but low-calorie theology about God is a terrible idea. That's the whole problem. The only reason why sin appeals to us is because our view of God is just so Puny. So if you want to grow If you want to change What you must do Is you must go to the text Spend a month in Isaiah 6 Not even kidding Spend a month in Isaiah 40 Not even kidding Spend a month in Psalm 145. Go to Ezekiel 1 and take your sweet time and ponder, ponder, ponder for weeks and months the unrefracted glory and majesty of God because at the end of the day, to see God is to be changed by God. That's Salvation Foundation number two. Which brings us to Salvation Foundation number three. Salvation foundation, number three, to which we must cling as the basis of our faith. Number three, the criteria by which we may know if we have salvation. The criteria by which we may know if we have salvation. And here John begins the x-ray. The EKG, the CAT scan of, of Holy Scripture to see inside the human soul to see if we do or do not have eternal life. Because again, you remember, two birds, one stone. John wants to unravel the claims of these these con men on the one hand, but with the exact same words, give his people assurance of their salvation. All at the same time, and the final stone that John throws is a series of tests. Five to be exact. And every test has a different design. Every test is designed to do something different. And each test helps us tell the difference between real faith and bogus faith, between counterfeit faith and legitimate faith. And again, these false teachers, they did not pass the tests. They did not. They utterly failed the tests. And yet, and yet, if you belong to Jesus Christ this morning, you will pass the tests. You will pass them if you are in Christ. And yet, having said that, like any test that you've ever had to take in your entire life, they're going to make you sweat just a little bit. They're going to make you uncomfortable just a little bit. They're going to make you introspective and ask hard questions just a little bit. And yet the end result will be that you will... Treasure Christ more and have more joy in your salvation. And if you fail the test, if you fail the test, if you do not pass the test, I just want you to know there is hope for you, not because you can do a retake, but because there is a Redeemer who loves to save wrath-deserving rebels like us. So let me read the tests. I'm going to read them. They're in verses 6 through 10. And as I do, I want you to listen for the differences and similarities and how they echo one another. Here are the tests, verses 6 through 10. Test number one If we should say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Test number two. But if we should walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Test number three. If we should say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Test number four. If we should confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Test number five. If we should say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. Those are the tests. Right there. Five criteria by which we may know if our salvation is counterfeit or authentic. And yet, what did you notice about the tests? There are five, and yet did you notice that all five tests begin with the word if? Which means that John is presenting us with hypothetical, although not so hypothetical scenarios by which we can gauge if we do or do not have eternal life. And did you also notice that three of the tests in verses 6 6 Eight and ten are what we might call negative tests and the other two positive and that they alternate back and forth in a pattern. Negative, positive, negative, positive, negative. And did you also notice that the three negative tests, John begins by saying, if we should say, which I think means he is quoting the false teachers. He's quoting what they said and exposing their lies. So let's go to the tests. Not lie detector test, but salvation detector tests to see if our salvation is authentic or counterfeit. We'll cover two today and we'll finish with the final three next week. But let's look at test number one. Test number one. And what does test number one reveal? What, what is its design? What does it reveal to us? Test number one reveals that counterfeit faith is deceitful faith. Counterfeit faith is deceitful faith, because John is clear, get this, if our salvation is bogus, if we're just playing games, if we're just going through the motions, if we have that dreadful, terrible, merely cultural form of Christianity, but we are not born again like it was for these false teachers, then there will inevitably be glaring hypocrisy in our lives, even if no one sees it except God. To look again at verse 6. Test number one. If we should say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. Again, notice what he says. If we should say, we, and by we he means they. These slimy New Age deceivers that snuck into the local church. John, I think, is quoting them. And what they said is, we have fellowship with God. In other words, we know God. We experience God, they claimed We have a relationship with God, they said. Which is an incredible thing to claim. That's a great thing to claim. That's the most important, significant thing in the universe to have. I mean, communion with the living God, relational, satisfying connection to the living God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is the most important thing in the universe. And that's what these smooth-talking phonies claimed about themselves. We have fellowship with God. The problem is, just because you claim you have it, doesn't mean you actually do have it. Because you would admit, wouldn't you, that that we can profess whatever we want about ourselves. But the proof of the pudding and our profession is displayed precisely in our lives. And that's exactly where the test is going, because looking at what he says. If we should say that we have fellowship with him, we know him, we love him, we have a relationship with him, and yet we walk in the darkness, John says we lie. And we do not practice the truth. I mean, that's a jarring statement. That's jarring. This is typical Johannine language. Bone jarring statements. Because again, it doesn't matter what we claim. It doesn't matter what we say about ourselves if it is not verified by some kind of supporting evidence in our lives that proves the authenticity of our claims. I mean, this would be kind of like someone saying, I love health and fitness. I love health and fitness. And yet, if all they do is sit on the couch eating burgers and ice cream, they prove by their behavior that they don't actually love health and fitness, that what they love are couches, burgers, and ice cream. And I love all those things. I mean, they, they love the opposite of health and fitness. And John says, in the same way, if you claim to have personal, satisfying fellowship with the living God, and yet you walk in the darkness, John says, I've got news for you. You don't have fellowship with God. You don't. You don't have that. So help us, John. What, what do you mean by this? Explain yourself. Well, think about it. John just told us that God is light, did he not? And if light is a vivid way to describe the white-hot holiness of God's radiant being, if God is the source of life and truth and salvation, and He is, then that means whatever darkness is, is the opposite of that. And that's exactly what it is. You see, darkness, get this now, darkness is a way to describe the God-ignoring pleasures of sin and unbelief. That's darkness. It's a way to describe the God ignoring pleasures of sin and unbelief. But but here's what's really important. John says, walk in the darkness. Walk in the darkness, present tense. This is one's custom. This is their habit. This is who they are. That word walk is a metaphor for live. This is how one lives one's life in their everyday life and even the most private, secret moments of their lives. To walk is who they are. This is what they love. This is what they actually live for. Therefore, to walk in darkness is not a jab at Halloween or worshiping Satan. No, to walk in darkness is any life lived without God at the supreme, all-satisfying center. That is darkness. To walk in darkness is a life of nonchalant disregard of what God says in His Word. He's not talking about the normal struggles of the Christian life that we all have. He's not talking about that that cyclical battle of the Christian life where you fight, you sometimes lose, repent, grow, agonize for life change. He's not talking about that. Rather, he is describing willful, ongoing patterns of sin that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify. What it means to walk in the darkness, which means at the end of the day, who John is describing here is an unbeliever. It's an unbeliever. It's an imposter. It's a counterfeit, a tear among the wheat. I mean, clearly, John is, is describing a person who, despite what they claim, they are under the blinding power of sin and the darkness. This is a person who doesn't know God. Why? Because they loiter, they dwell, they live in the darkness. A life of nonchalant disregard of the majesty of God. That's why John says at the end of verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We lie and we do not practice the truth. I mean, John is really clear. You can't truly have fellowship with God and be walking in darkness all at the same time. It doesn't work. You can't live in the nonchalant disregard of the majesty of God and have any assurance that your salvation is authentic. In fact, if that's who we are, John says, we are liars. And we do not practice the truth. And I understand that these verses are scary. The, these cut to the bone just a little bit, don't they? And the reason why they do is because we can always find some area of our lives where we are inconsistent, right? I mean, we don't have to dig very long or very hard in our lives to find at least some level of hypocrisy or Sin that we tolerate to some degree or minimize or some kind of compromise or gross motives or ugly desires somewhere in our lives. You see, we struggle and we fight and we grind our fingers down to the bone in the war against sin. And yet, and yet, if that's how the Christian life feels to you, if it feels like a constant war and fight to the death, I've got news for you. John doesn't mean you. That's not who he's describing here. He, that's not who he's talking about. He's not talking about people who struggle and fight and war against the flesh. He's not talking about them. But what he does mean are people who claim to know the God who is light. And yet they loiter and they dwell in the darkness and they kind of feel okay about it. Some, th- these are people who knowingly or ignorantly live a double life. Knowingly or ignorantly live a double life. These are either people who pretend that they are authentic or they are persuaded that they are authentic and yet they prove by their lives that they don't actually have salvation. You hear the difference between those? And so the question I have for you is so loaded, but it's it's really appropriate for us. And the question is, Are you loitering in the darkness? Are you loitering in the darkness? What I mean is, are there willful, ongoing patterns of sin in your life that you knowingly tolerate and secretly justify? Do you see in your life that fearful, nonchalant disregard of the majesty of God and the whole, and the and the Word of God? Do the habits and patterns of your life reveal that, despite what you claim, you might actually be an unbeliever under the blinding power of sin and darkness? Life is too short, eternity is too long to, to at least not ask the question. And I know that's a loaded question, I know that that's a loaded thing, but I come to you this morning not as a self-righteous warden rattling your cage with my nightstick, but I come to you as a former prisoner of sin showing you the way of escape and the way of escape the only way of escape is repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to yield in submission to the lamb of god who train change and- changes and transforms people's lives because right now he stands right now he stands full of pity full of power, full of love, ready to save, ready to apply the proceeds of his death to anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. So if you have not done so, those at home, if you have not done so, would you cry out to him in repentance and faith? Because this is a test, a CAT scan of the soul that reveals the true nature of the human heart, which brings us to test number two, and then we're done. Test number two, and what this test reveals is that authentic faith is visible faith. Authentic faith is visible faith. Counterfeit faith is deceitful or hypocritical faith. Authentic faith is visible faith. Look what John says in verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, notice the contrast with verse 6. Phony faith walks in darkness. Genuine faith walks in light. Phony faith claims fellowship with God, but authentic faith actually has fellowship with one another. So let's take the test. and Notice the scenario. John says, if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, what is he describing? Who is he describing? What he's describing is a true believer. This is true, authentic, biblical, saving faith on open display here. And and notice that authentic faith walks in the light, lives in the light, present tense. Meaning what? Meaning that true, authentic believers are always careful and conscientious to live every moment of their lives in the light. And what does John mean by light? I mean, that sounds kind of mystical, but it's not. It's profoundly theological. Because notice, who is in the light? It says he is in the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light. Who is in the light? This is God himself. God is light and dwells in light, which means to be in the light is to be where God is. And so do do you see the kind of faith that John is describing? What he's saying is to walk in the light as God is in the light means that authentic believers live every moment of their lives, even the most private, secret, hidden moments of their lives, as if God were standing in the very room, which he is. That's what this says. The God who knows all and sees all and who knows the secrets of the heart is present in every moment of our lives in the totality of His being. I've said this before. This is a person with that profound God consciousness that knows that no matter where they're standing, they're standing on holy ground. Why? Because God is there. God is in the room. See, if you walk in the light as God is in the light, then that means you know there's no such thing as a private moment. There's no such thing as a secular moment. There's no such thing as a moment where God is not there in the totality of His being, watching, looking, examining, scrutinizing, loving, ready to be called upon for His mercy and power. It's like those old movies where people break out of prison. All right, and they're in the courtyard of the prison, and they're creeping around in the darkness, tiptoeing around the spotlight, trying not to be seen. We are the opposite of that. We are always in the searching spotlight of God's piercing omnipresence. We live every moment of our lives in the holy gaze of the God who knows the secrets of the soul. The question is, is that the kind of faith that you possess? Do you live in the light as God is in the light? Do you live every moment in the holy gaze of the God who sees the secrets of the soul? Not to critique and condemn, but to be there, to to bestow upon you His power to do what He commands you to do. Maybe the question is, and this one's going to sting a little bit, but... Are there some sins you would never do in this room, but you would do somewhere else? Because what's the difference between here and there? We're not there, but God is there. And He's the only one that really matters in the end. That is authentic faith. But again, one of the things that makes John so intriguing to read is that he's full of surprises. And John makes these connections in the text that we would have never made, and yet it makes perfect sense to make them. And, and notice in verse 7 that he he gives two stunning effects of, of walking in the light. Two effects of walking in the light. Look what he says in verse 7. If we should say that we, if we should be walking in the light, as he himself is in the light, effect number one, we have fellowship with one another. And number two, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Those are really profound connections and effects. John says that if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That's a really interesting statement to make, because you would think that based off what he just said in verse 6, that he would say if we walk in the light, we have fellowship with who? With God. But he doesn't say that. He says we have fellowship with one another. But that's a weird connection to make, because what does my private seeking of God, what does that have to do with my relationships with other people? It has everything to do with my relationships with other people. Everything. You see, the basis, the basis for authentic, biblical, satisfying relationships with one another is profoundly dependent upon our personal seeking of God in the private moments of our lives. Put it this way the barometer of our public fellowship reveals the nature of our private worship. I mean, Christians in America, and rightly so, are so concerned over COVID. And bringing spreadable particles into the church. But are but are Christians in America more concerned with bringing polluted hearts and minds into the fellowship? And the connection John makes is stunning. If you, if you pursue God in your private life as hard as you possibly can, then you will feel connected to other people. But effect number two, effect number two, and this is really interesting. John says that if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This, this is so interesting, right? Because the, the question is, why are some sins so hard to kill? Did you ever think about that? Why, why are some sins in our lives so hard to get rid of, so hard to shake? Why do we see so little growth in certain areas of our life when we've prayed about them, maybe? I mean, if Christ truly changes people's lives like he claims, then why do we not see the purifying power of his blood more regularly in our lives? And John has an answer. He has the answer to our sanctification woes that plague us. And the answer is, when we walk in the light as God is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Help us, John. What's the connection between those? connection is this. John John is telling us this. Listen carefully. John is telling us that the blood of Jesus alone can purify our lives. That the death of Christ provides the power we need to do what God commands. Agreed? And yet what we may not know, what we may not realize, is just how far down the corruption goes in our hearts. That we may not understand. In other words, we 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 don't actually see how helpless we are to do what God commands. We underestimate the power of sin and we overestimate our power to resist sin. We think we've got this. We've got it in us. The power we need is the power of the will. And yet what John is telling us is that the purifying power to cleanse us from all sin, all sin, depends upon walking in the light. Here's his point. When you walk in the light, you see the glory of God. And the more glory you see of who God is, the more you see the corruptions of your own heart. And the more you see that, the more desperate your dependence upon Christ becomes. Do you see the connection? The more we see God as we walk in the light, and the more we see the blinding brightness of His majesty, the more we see the corruption of our hearts in comparison, and the more we see that, the more desperate our dependence upon the blood of Christ becomes. So, if you want to grow in holiness, and life change, and transformation... We must cultivate eyes to see the Himalayan heights of the holiness of God. The higher up into God we climb, the more radical and intense our dependence becomes. That's what John's after. So that's two of the tests. Two of the tests. Three more coming next week, but my question is how'd you do on the tests? Don't answer out loud. But how'd you do on the tests? Did you pass the test for saving faith? Is your salvation counterfeit, or it, it, is it legitimate? What did John's EKG reveal about the status of your soul? And these these questions are these are hard questions because again we it doesn't take hard for us to reach for something that we did last week or yesterday or this morning that makes us feel weighty and even condemned and yet if you are in Jesus Christ you need to know that not only not only is there forgiveness the permanent cancellation of all crimes against the living God but that you are justified in Christ that the Christ's very righteousness imputed transferred to your bankrupt spiritual bank account so that the only thing that the father sees when he looks at you positionally is the righteousness of his own son if you are in Christ you are all already adopted. The adoption fee has been paid. You are a son or daughter of the living God. It is paid for. The wrath of God against you has been abolished. It is over. It is done. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you see? Everything depends on the sin-bearing death of Jesus Christ. And if you are in Him, that is what What John wants for us is assurance, unmistakable joy and assurance that salvation is yours, that if you belong to Christ by faith, you have eternal life. And when we have that, then we have the joyful courage to face a fallen world, knowing that no matter what happens to us, we are always safe in the sovereign hands. Oh Lord, we did not know that when we woke up this morning we would have to contend with the Apostle John in the counseling room. These are hard things to hear. These are hard things to wrestle with. It's uncomfortable to push ourselves to the brink and ask ourselves these kinds of probing questions, Lord, and yet we must ask them. We must. We don't fear that. We don't fear asking, interrogating ourselves, being introspective, Lord, because we're not placing hope in ourselves, Lord. We're not placing hope in our performance, in our track record, even our own power to do what you command. We're placing all of our hope in your Son that you have provide, provided for us, your all-sufficient Son who's infinitely worthy, costly, satisfying death provides everything we need, and it's to Him we cling, to Him we flee for refuge. Anyone in this room, Lord, or at home who does not know Jesus Christ, maybe they think they do, but maybe they don't actually. I pray that you would work in their lives, that you would bring about regeneration, being born again, that they would see the humanly incurable corruption of their souls and cast themselves at the feet of your son knowing that he loves sinners and he loves to save them and we are proof of that so lord use this letter sharp and jagged and black and white though it may be to change us transform us and help us love christ and the salvation which he purchased all the more and it's in his name we pray